to build a fire, by Jack London. Day had broken, cold and gray, exceedingly cold and gray, when the man turned aside from the main Yukon Trail and climbed the high earth bank, where a dim and little travel trail led eastward through a fat spruce timberland. It was a steep bank, and he paused for breath at the top, excusing the act to himself by looking at his watch. It was nine o'clock. There was no sun, nor hint of sun. Though there was not a cloud in the sky, it was a clear day, and yet there seemed an intangible pall over the face of things, a subtle gloom that made the day dark and it was due to the absence of the sun. This fact did not worry the man. He was used to the lack of sun. It had been days since he had seen the sun, and he knew that a few more days must pass before that cheerful orb due south would just peep above the skyline and dip immediately from view. The man flung a book back along the way he had come, the Yukon lay a mile wide and hidden under three feet of ice. On top of this ice were as many as were as many feet of snow. It was all pure white, rolling in gentle undulations where the ice jams of the freeze-up had formed. North and south, as far as his eyes could see, it was unbroken, white save for a dark hairline that curved and twisted from around the spruce tree covered island to the south. And that covered and twisted away into the north, where it disappeared behind another spruce-covered island. This dark hairline was the trail, the main trail, that led south 500 miles to the Chilkoot Pass. Dia, the saltwater, and that led north 70 miles to Dawson, and still on to the north a thousand miles to Nulato, and finally to St. Michael on Bering Sea. A thousand miles, and half a thousand more. But all this, the mysterious far-reaching hairline trail, and the absence of sun from the sky, the tremendous cold and strangeness strangeness and weirdness of it all made no impression on the man. It was not because he was long used to it. He was a newcomer in the land, a Chickaqua, and this was his first winter. The trouble with him was that he was without imagination. He was quick and alert in the things of his life, but only in the things and not in the significances. 50, degree, 50 degrees below zero meant 80-odd degrees of frost. Such fact impressed him as being cold and uncomfortable, and that was all. It did not lead him to meditate upon his frailty as a creature of temperature and upon man's frailty in general. Able to live within certain narrow limits of heat and cold, and from there on, it did not lead him to the conjectural field of immortality in man's place in the universe. Fifty degrees below zero stood for a bite of frost that hurt and that must be guarded against by the use of mittens, ear flaps, 
warm moccasins, and thick socks. Fifty degrees below zero was to him just precisely fifty degrees below zero. That there should be anything more to it than that was a thought that never entered his head. As he turned to go on, he spat speculatively. There was a sharp, explosive crackle that startled him. He spat again, and again in the air before it could fall to the snow. The spittle crackled. He knew that at fifty below, a spittle crackled on the snow, but this spittle had crackled in the air. Undoubtedly, it was colder than fifty below. How much colder? He did not know. But the temperature did not matter. He was bound for the old claim on the left fork of Henderson Creek, where the boys were already. They had come over across the divide from the Indian Creek country, while he had come the roundabout way to take a look at the possibilities of getting out logs in the spring from the islands in the Yukon. He would be into camp by six o'clock, a bit after dark. It was true, but the boys would be there. A fire would be going, and hot supper would be ready. As for lunch, he pressed his hand against his, the protruding bundle under his jacket. It was also under his shirt, wrapped up in a handkerchief and lying against the naked skin. It was the only way to keep the biscuits from freezing. He smiled agreeably to himself as he thought of those biscuits, each cut open and sopped in bacon grease, and each enclosing a generous slice of fried bacon. He plunged in among the spruce trees. The trail was faint. A foot of snow had fallen since the last sled had passed over, and he was glad he was without a sled traveling light. In fact, he carried nothing but the lunch wrapped in the handkerchief. He was surprised, however, at the cold. It certainly was cold, he concluded, as he rubbed his numb nose and cheekbones with his mittened hand. He was a warm, whiskered man, but the hair on his face did not protect the high cheekbones and the eager nose that thrust aggressively into the frosty air. At the man's heels trotted a dog, a big native husky. The proper wolf dog, gray-coated and without any visible or temperamental difference from its brother, the wild wolf. The animal was depressed by the tremendous cold. It knew that it was no time for traveling. Its instinct told it a truer tale than was told to the man by the man's judgment. In reality, it was not merely colder than fifty below zero. It was colder than sixty below, than seventy below. It was seventy-five below zero. Since the freezing point is thirty-two above zero, it meant that one hundred and seven degrees of frostbite obtained. The dog did not know anything about the thermometers. Possibly in its brain, there was no sharp consciousness of a condition of very cold, such as was in the man's brain. But the brute had its instincts. It experienced a vague but menacing apprehension that the subdued, that subdued it and made it slink along the man's heels, and that made it question eagerly every unwanted movement of the man, as if expecting him to go into camp or to seek shelter somewhere and build a fire. 
The dog had learned fire, and it wanted fire, or else to burrow under the snow and cuddle its warmth away from the air. The frozen moisture of its breath had settled onto its fur and fine powder of frost, and especially were its jowls, muzzle, and eyelashes whitened by the crystalled breath. The man's red beard and mustache were likewise frosted, but more solidly, the deposit taking the form of ice and increasing with every warm, moist breath he exhaled. Also, the man was a chewing tobacco, and the muzzle of ice held his lips so rigidly that he was unable to clear his chin when he expelled the juice. The result was that a crystal beard of color and solidity of amber was increasing in its length on his chin. If he fell down, it would shatter itself like glass into little brittle fragments. But he did not mind the appendage. It was the penalty all tobacco chewers paid in that country. And he had been out before in two cold snaps. They had not been so cold as this, he knew. But by the spirit thermometer at 60 mile, he knew they had been registered at 50 below and at 55. He held on through the level stretch of woods for several miles, crossed a wide flat of nigger heads and dropped down a bank to the frozen bed of, of a small stream. This was Henderson Creek and he knew he was 10 miles from the forks. He looked at his watch. It was 10 o'clock. He was making four miles an hour and he calculated he would arrive at the forks at half past 12. He decided to celebrate that event by eating his lunch there, 